Welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deacon, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deacon sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm Timothy Neal, Research Fellow at the Alfred Deacon Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, and I'm here with my co-host, David Giles, Lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University. Today we're speaking with Dr. Eve Vincent, Lecturer in the Department of Anthropology at Macquarie University. She is the author of Against Native Title, Conflict and Creativity in Outback Australia, published by Aboriginal Studies Press this year, and the co-editor of Unstable Relations, Environmentalism and Indigenous People in Contemporary Australia, published by the University of Western Australia Press in 2016. She has also written for a rich variety of academic and literary journals. Eve is a visiting fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization. Her work engages with ideas of indigeneity, recognition, and governmentality. And she's written on issues such as native title, intercultural collaboration, and welfare quarantining. She has a long-term ethnographic engagement with the town of Sejuna in South Australia. Uh, and we're very pleased that she's here to join us today. Hello, Eve. Hi, Tim. So, uh, we like to start off every, every episode with a, a question that doesn't often get asked uh, in our experience. How did you become interested in anthropology? Uh, okay, well, I came very late to anthropology. So as an undergrad at Melbourne University, I was interested in history. It was a really interesting time to be on that campus in terms of history. The history wars in Australia were uh, in full swing. So that was a public debate about, uh, well, the veracity, but also the legacy of the violent um, colonial past and the frontier period in Australia. Uh, it involved many members of the history department and there was a kind of politics that grew up around the history wars, I think, on that campus at that time. So it was a very politicised campus, uh, people were talking about the past, about settler colonialism, about responsibility, about whiteness very much. And within that world, that sort of intellectual, political, social, cultural milieu, I think anthropology was regarded as suspect, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, there was a sense in which the past was a source of shame and anthropology was very tied up in that colonial past. And I, you know, I really regret that I never enrolled in any anthropology subjects. You know, I did the write-on exciting stuff, uh, mm -hmm. which was history, but also creative writing, cultural studies, post-colonial cultural theory. Uh, so then how did I come to anthropology? Well, I, I did honours in history then, and I wrote about the past in the present. So I wrote about... Uh, the British Atomic Testing Program in the South Australian Desert, but I was linking that to a campaign, an environmental campaign, that I was quite involved in as an activist, a campaign against the siting of a nuclear waste dump in northern South Australia. Um, and now I can see that there were ethnographic elements in that honours thesis, as I wrote about the kind of more contemporary nuclear issues. And when I went, you know, I did other things for quite a while, and then I went back to do a PhD, and rather than just write about the past in the present, I knew I wanted to write about the present. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. 
Uh, and I really got lucky, I think, in that I answered a job ad for a research assistant uh, to work with the anthropologist Gillian Callishaw. So I got this job, um, and Gillian was in the final stages of the field work that she was conducting in Western Sydney, um, and her, that, that book became uh, The City's Outback. Uh, and I served a kind of apprenticeship. So I, I used to, and we used to drive out to Western Sydney together. And I think that space of like being in the car and talking, so all these conversations in the car, and I shadowed her in the field, which is incredible uh, experience and, and probably very rare. Uh, and she piqued my interest in, in the potential of entering into people's lives and writing about the present as it is lived in as it is experienced. Mm. Um, thinking about that that uh, sort of stigma that anthropology has carried about its colonial past mm. or possibly present, uh, I mean, your work now, of course, is about native title or much of your work. Uh, so uh, how do you look at native title now uh, with that colonial past in mind and how does... Uh, how does anthropology's entanglement in native title uh, and anthropology's entanglement in Aboriginal land rights recognition affect your work? Yeah, well, in a way, that work, which I do see myself as, uh, you know, it's come to an end point mm -hmm. uh, in, with the publication of the book. I think, in a way, the work is about those entanglements, mm -hmm. in a way, so, yeah, as Tim was saying in opening, um, I've just published this book, Against Native Title, mm. which is in quote marks, mm -hmm. um, which is about one Aboriginal group's experience of a very divisive and drawn-out Native Title claim. Um, and the book has this central character. It's influenced by the genre of ethnographic biographies. Um, her name is Sue Coleman Hasseldine. And I try and understand why she is against native title, mm. why she taken a stand against native title. Um, and part of why the, the sort of answer to that question, I mean, there are, there are two parts to the answer in a way. Partly it's to do with uh, the issue of mining, but partly it's to do with the issue of recognition, the terms of recognition, uh, the terms that this, uh, you know, the state's terms on which one is to be recognised and the process through which recognition is realised, which is a process that involves going back to that colonial past mm -hmm. uh, in a really different way as a source of truth uh, about uh, the present and people's identities and their affiliations and... Um, it, this process unfolded in Sejuna in such a way as to make some people feel that the archival record uh, was, you know, had a, a, a kind of power to um, make comment on their identities um, that over, overrode their kind of power to say, this is who I am, this is my story, this is my past, this is my family. Um, and anthropologists and anthropology was very implicated in that process. So there was a negative discourse about anthropology as expertise, as expertise that were granted um, more credibility through the native title claims system and process than the, the sorts of things people felt that they'd always known about themselves. Mm. So 
Um, so I make that an object of analysis, but then I'm an ethnographer of that pain and experience. So it's a really tricky situation. I mean, the other kind of complicating factor that possibly made it okay in a way for me to be there and doing that is that I enter the picture as a greenie. Um, so the other part of Auntie Sue and her family group's disillusionment with native title arises out of the incredible security native title legislation grants to third party interests um, and the fact that Aboriginal people have no right of veto over mining projects. Uh, this was a family group that was very vehemently opposed to, to mineral exploration and mining in this part of the world. Um, and they had invited environmentalists to come to them and they were trying to build up an alliance and draw resources into uh, their campaign and to kind of bolster their stand. And because I had this past as uh, an activist, a kind of solidarity activist, um, I was, I knew people and I kind of entered the scene as a kind of greenie and I had to remind people that I was, had this sort of split. I, I'm a greenie, but I'm a researcher and originally, I'll add another complication to the story. <laughs> Originally, I was a greenie researching greenies. Mm -hmm. That changed. Um, I would sort of foreground or, tr or attempt to foreground, you know, you know I'm a greenie, but I'm also doing this research that people really saw me as a greenie mm -hmm. and could sort of... They didn't see me as an anthropologist. So, you know, people would were quite frank with me, you know, how their views on anthropologists were, were really made very explicit to me mm. in a way where the, people didn't think they were talking to an anthropologist when they told me that, yeah. Mm. Did that shift uh, over your time there? I don't think so. I, well, I do think that, not over my time there, mm. but subsequently, definitely. I think that um, the biggest thing is that I now have a job in an anthropology department mm -hmm. also and so uh, that has made it much clearer that my time is being spent you know not in the world of um, a, you know protests and collective meetings and campaigns mm -hmm. that's not what I do uh, I I am you know at home in an institution that's what I do and so I think People have seen me more and more as, you know, primarily a, an academic with a greenie, you know, a little bit of greenie mixed in, whereas the reverse was, or the inverse was true while I was there. So I've been working there for a long time. So people, you know, those relationships um, shift and change over time. And the other thing is I think that people primarily saw me as a mum, because I went there with a really little baby. And, right. that, and that was a big part of my year there. Yeah. So the subtitle of your book uh, is Conflict and Creativity in Outback Australia. And I guess some people would be reasonably familiar with native title as a scene of conflict. But I was wondering if you could expand on what you mean by creativity in that title. Sure. So one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book and tell this story is that I think there is a little bit of an image in public 
in the public's mind and there is a kind of public discourse, like a negative discourse about those Indigenous people who are ungrateful for the opportunity to have their rights sort of recognised um, through the native title system and who are seen as quite mischievous uh, when they hold out um, and, and kind of complicate native title claims as they unfold and also certainly there is a kind of negative discourse about dissidents who block mining projects. Um, so that's, I'm sort of referencing here uh, some of what uh, we discuss. So Unstable Relations, the edited collection is a book that Tim and I co-edited and we respond in that book to, to some of those uh, public discourses about mining as offering a kind of viable future in remote and regional Australia. And there is this portrayal of Indigenous people who reject that offer as um, kind of obstructing that possibility. Mm, or influenced by external parties. Exactly. So that, you know, that's why I emphasise that uh, Aunty Sue was very much, had extended an invitation to Greenies to come to her and is how I first met her. And in our, our book, we have lots of case studies where these relationships come about in that way. Anyway, so there's this image of obstructionist, mischievous, etc., and that does not accord with my experience of working with a kind of dissident group. In fact, what I saw was that out of all this conflict, uh, Ani Su's family group were creating something new, and that takes the very practical form of heading out bush and tending to rock hole sites. So these are quite dramatic in some cases, uh, rock formations in very arid Mallee landscape uh, that um, have permanent sources of water, often in um, deep wells, but also more shallow pools. And uh, there would have been in pre-contact times, you know, these are, would have been a high priority to take care of these sites. They also have enormous um, kind of cultural significance in terms of dreaming stories etc., although that's not my focus in the book. And Ani Su has really led this initiative. Uh, she leads these trips out the back uh, and she takes greenies with her, but she takes Indigenous people with her and she has invested in a practice of, a, you know, a resurgent practice of caring for these sites. Um, and it, it's, she's not resourced. So it's incredibly, it's this kind of makeshift creativity, uh, really in, ingenious, um, committed to being out bush and I argue in the book that you know she, there are a lot of things going on when she kind of um, re-energizes this practice um, and one of the things going on is that she's making a kind of political point about you know this is what it means to have an embodied relationship with country to go onto country to work on country to be with country to get filthy and sweaty in doing this work on country and it's meant to kind of generate a sort of binary distinction which she then animates around well this is this is how i live this relationship with country um i live it like this instead of talking about it in the courts um, so it's state-authored processes that involve um, words, um, you know, and 
uh, kind of contrasted with these much more spontaneous, um, uh, you know, undertakings that that happen despite uh, the lack of kind of resources and and formal state sanction mm. of that relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil the end of your book because people should go out and read it, obviously. But uh, my sense from reading it is that the conflict we've kind of in Sejuna, it's entered a different phase now. The conflict is is kind of resolved. Yeah, I, well, the the claim is resolved mm. uh, some time ago, and I think yeah, I think some of that. I don't think I would have been able to publish a book until some of the intensity, because I really do try and capture uh, the affect surrounding this this conflict. Um, so I try and kind of go there with people's bitterness and anger and sense of betrayal and disappointment. Uh, and I probably wouldn't have been able to publish it or I, I wouldn't have felt it was a good idea to publish it until the kind of full ball intensity of those emotions had sort of receded a bit. Uh, I think time has moved on. Some people have died. Um, there are other issues in that town now. It's just which has rearranged the kind of polity and just uh, mm. you know I think I think it is a book that documents something that happened and it has it has happened and has come to a kind of end. Yeah. Mm. Um, and with that, it seems like your your work is moving uh, in the direction of looking at uh, the cashless uh, cashless welfare card trial in the same place. Um, so these trials have been invested with a lot of hope and funding by Australia's political elites. Uh, what does it mean to take an anthropological approach to those? Yeah, I'm at the very, very early stages of mm. some new research uh, into welfare reform. It will begin back in Sejuna. I didn't think that I would keep working there, although I've, I've kept visiting um, over the years. Uh, but it's a long way from Sydney. And then Sejuna was announced as the first trial site for the cashless debit card trial, which um, this cashless debit card quarantines 80% of a welfare recipient's income and leaves 20% to, as, as cash. Um, so I became sort of interested in its nomination and, and selection as the first trial site for, you know, a fairly radical policy experiment. Um, so I, I will go out there and begin the work on welfare reform out there, although I do think it's work that will have to also take me to other places. Mm. Perhaps it would be helpful to tell us a little bit about Sejuna and why, why was Sejuna chosen for this policy experiment? Mm. What do you think made it a good site for this kind of intervention by the government? I think there are reasons why this made sense from the state's point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they're very complex and sensitive reasons. Um, There was, in 2011, there was a coronial inquest uh, conducted into some um, Anagul deaths in Sejuna. Mm -hmm. And um, this, the coroner, reflected on a kind of culture of excessive alcohol consumption in this area, which led um, sort of indirectly to the sixth death he was charged with examining. 
And in all of the media reporting of Sejuna's selection as a trial site, this coronial inquest, inquest plays a very important role. So Sejuna uh, is depicted as uh, home to scenes of suffering, which um, seem so extreme and arouse so much compassion in response that they demand... So this is me trying to make intelligible the governmental <laughs> logics. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, it, it seems to demand intervention into these lives. Um, now, that could be true of... I mean, this is the same governmental logic of the intervention, and this could be true of lots of other places. And the second um, original trial site is the East Kimberley. Um, what made Sejuna uh, particularly probably viable as a trial site? Part of that is to do with Sejuna's sort of a curious and just historically kind of contingent situation in which there are different kinds of Aboriginalities in this town. And there is a sort of if you like, there's, there's a mode of embodied Aboriginality in this town which is respectable, respectable Aboriginality and there is a kind of way or a, an embodied form of Aboriginality in this town which is uh, troubling in various ways. It sometimes elicits uh, disgust and condemnation but in this particular scenario it elicited compassion and a sense of urgency uh, and... Um, Sejuna was sort of set up in such a way that there were a lot of very legitimate um, and community-minded Indigenous people uh, calling out for a kind of interventionist um, Mm. uh, intervention Mm. (laughs) into Mm -hmm. this this scenario. Right. So uh, uh, does that follow any of the same same sort of divisions that you would have seen before? Like how does Auntie, Auntie Sue think about it? Yeah, I, they're actually quite Dead. different mm-hmm. divisions, actually. And um, they're sort of divisions that uh, are generated through these sort of two different historical experiences meeting in the one place, one of which is a group of people whose you know, experience of the colonial encounter and of uh, economic entanglements in the area has been vastly different to the experience of uh, Pitanjara speakers who, whose kind of story, like the, the story of that Pitanjara mob, has been profoundly shaped by the British Atomic Testing Program. Um, and, and so in my initial thinking, and this is, I, I probably sound a bit like vague on this because it's early days and I don't, I'm not sure what I think of a lot of things, but I think that that kind of intra-Aboriginal distinction between Nyangas, uh, South Australian Indigenous people of various sort of tribal, if you like, affiliations, um, is it's sort of the Nyanga-Anangul distinction that has come to matter more here, which is quite different to within Native title, within that category of Nyanga, the distinctions between different people, when I say Tribal. I'm saying that because people use that term themselves, and and I would, you know, my preference is to put that in quote marks. Um, within that category of Nyanga, there's a, a number of sort of more traditional uh, land-based, territorially defined groups 
and the distinctions between them mattered within the native title claim. So this is actually a different set of relationships, which is partly why, you know, the, the native title story does seem to be the old story. And there's a different story there now. Right, right. And, and just to circle back to something uh, David asked about before, you know, this is a topic in which if we're thinking about um, academic disciplines and their investment to date, you know, ideas about welfare reform or alcohol consumption have largely been kind of programmed through more kind of sociological approaches. What are, how can we count behaviours? And so kind of more generally, what do you think, you know, an anthropological approach to an issue like this gets you to the other disciplines can't or, you know, or it's much more difficult to... Yeah, sure. Well, it's interesting because in my, you know, I really do emphasise I'm at this early stage. I have been um, reading a little bit of, you know, in the US it does seem that after Clinton's reforms in the 1990s, there are a whole lot of US anthropologists that become very interested in the anthropology of welfare reform. So these are ethnographers working in urban black communities um, and I, you know, and incidentally, the Clinton reforms in the literature are for a long time talked about as the most comprehensive restructuring of a, of a welfare state in a post-Fordist uh, global north economy. But commentators have lately been saying, no, actually Australia's experiments in conditional welfare in Indigenous communities surpass those as the most sort of wide-ranging uh, welfare reforms. Um, but to go back to this question, so I've, I've, I've kind of noticed there are ethnographers working in, in you know, welfare reform-affected communities in the US. I haven't really seen that happen here, and I do think it has a lot to offer um, in terms of kind of experience near accounts of uh, this time period and these interventions into one's life. Um, I think anthropology offers the potential to kind of denaturalise this category of welfare recipient, to think about other, you know, the many ways people kind of labour in their lives, uh, to think about care um, and relationships with kin in sort of different ways. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest thing for me is to get up close to the experience of being inside a policy experiment um, to humanise the category of welfare recipient, which, you know, inherently is defined by what people lack, i.e. Uh, a job in the formal economy. Um, but I'm also thinking that that doesn't actually tell, it obviously doesn't tell us everything we need to know about welfare reform. So I think the political economy story of welfare reform is also really crucial. I mean, and anthropology does offer that uh, opportunity to work, uh, to kind of articulate um, sort of global frames or global scales with local experiences. But I imagine having to kind of tack between the two a lot in this kind of work. It's not place-based work, I don't think. So you've also been involved in a collaboration with sociologists looking at school choice um, in uh, urban Sydney. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about that work, like what led to it uh, and, and what did it reveal to you and, and to your co-researchers? Yeah, uh, what led to it? So this was a small study involving four schools and about 40 interviews in an area of inner Sydney. What led to it? It came about because it must have been in early 2013, I submitted my PhD thesis uh, I was underemployed, um, but quite happy to be because my eldest son was starting school. And I thought, oh, you know, good, I'll be really attentive to this new experience uh, for him. And I don't think I realised that I was about to also be socialised into quite a new identity as a member of a school community. And, you know, you just never switch off that ethnographer. So I started going sort of seeing these sort of interesting scenes in the schoolyard and particularly I went to one event where I remember the outgoing uh, president of the PNC gave a speech. He was a very lovely, um, committed, white, middle-class parent and he, he gave this speech that was sort of like, look, some of you may have heard things about this school but... You know, I just want to reassure you that I have found here a richness and a diversity that far outweighs anything you might be concerned about. And it was so euphemistic and so, so many dot, 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 like searching looks <laughs> to the audience. You couldn't and, help but be intrigued. Yeah. And I was like, what is he talking about? Who is he talking to? Uh, and they were sort of that sort of led me into a kind of more systematic exploration of the, you know how do this is a this was a rapidly gentrifying area it had gone from being a working class and migrant area to being a pretty cool uh, very expensive uh, white increasingly white and middle class area and uh, we with some sociologists we conducted a study into how parents negotiate relations across class and ethnicised difference uh, and the sorts of decisions they make about schooling um, So, and the sorts of conversations they have about you know, the, the, the kind of social landscape of these school communities. Yeah. I wonder if I can ask you about, about your writing because, of course, you write, uh, you write beautifully and you write in a range of different formats. And I, public writing or non, non-academic writing is something I, I would love for the discipline to be talking about more in general. Uh, but it's also easy to sort of profess the value of engagement and not talk about what engagement, quote-unquote, really means or not talk about what... Uh, to sort of stop at saying we should write for the public and then not have the conversation about what sort of public we're writing for and, and what those engagements really mean. So when you're writing for New Matilda or something like that, how do you think about what sorts of engagements you're actually creating and who are you writing to? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the compliment first. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I have written for different reasons and different readers mm. for a much longer time than I've been an academic. Um I do it, well, you know, one of the reasons I do, I do it for lots of reasons. One of the reasons I do it is because I find um, 
I think there are good things about how slowly uh, some of our academic work can move and it's a real luxury to be able to think about something for years and years. Mm. Uh, the publishing process is very slow um, but sometimes I feel the need to kind of, you know, think something and formulate it and then share it. Um, and so, you know, it's nice to be able to feel like you have something to say and then to just say it in the moment that you care about it, you know, really strongly and, mm. and want to say it. In terms of the different audiences, I mean, I think a lot of writers wonder if anyone ever reads their work. Uh, I guess, you know, it is a bit of a question in terms of, you know, there are different styles for different publications and I think some of them you can be more confident that you're reaching, definitely reaching readers and you kind of know which readers you're reaching. Um, then I guess there's a the question of how far do you take the conversation? So speaking of, mm -hmm. if you write for the conversation, um, do you stay online and engage with the comments? Like is that a kind of productive form of public engagement um we all know not to feed the trolls but <laughs> you know is there a, do you have responsibility to kind of keep um kind of chatting i'm i am a bit reticent to do that but sometimes feel that i've seen other people do it in mm. ways that are, are admirable um and probably do represent a real kind of you know entering into a real kind of conversation with mm. people who mm. want to understand what you're saying yeah I do I do think it's good for academics to uh, write in ways that uh, other people can understand mm. them and in in more ordinary using more ordinary forms of language mm. that's one thing I've thought a lot about uh, you know in, in a way you lose something by not being able to take 7,000 words mm -hmm. uh, and not having all the jargon at your disposal to really zoom in and say something precisely. Yeah. Uh, but I often think about what we lose in writing in 7,000 words and, and in having these very rarefied ways of describing it. And I, uh, and I wonder if there are things that you feel like you can say in one format and not another and how those potentially inform each other. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. Um... I think there is something immensely satisfying about, um, you know, running an argument, which you can do in a, or you can kind of just do in 7,000 words. I mean, even that's, you know, a really, <laughs> it's really constrained, isn't it? But, you know, there is something intellectually satisfying about um, being able to think your way through an argument and to know, you know, but you're having that conversation with a really specialised audience, like a group of people who are also, uh, who you're probably arguing with. Mm. They're the people who are going to read it. Um, then it's good to uh, kind of say, well, I, I, I can explain some of what I'm on about to others. Mm. They're not, they're not going to care about the detail or, you know, the the kind of precise way the argument unfolds and the, the quibbles and the sort of qualifications, etc. I just want to give some people some sense of what I'm on about to get them thinking about things differently. Um, and so, yeah, I can 
not be precious about them getting the whole story and mm-hmm. all the kind of terms, etc. I mean, I've had experiences of writing essays for uh, journals, sort of literary uh, journals, etc., where editors uh, have said, you know, you need to explain this more. I think, I think it's one of the reasons it's good to do is that it's really hard to keep aware of what it might mean to write for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I know how to do it. And then I'll submit something to an editor Mm -hmm. and they're like, I don't understand this. Can you replace this word? Uh, Can you explain this? Can you step us through this? And I had written it thinking I was being really clear and jargon free and stepping the reader through it. So you lose the, that's a skill that you, lose when you don't have to do it and so you you know keeping it up Mm. is good yeah Mm. so the last few years you've been uh, a lecturer in anthropology and this has involved i imagine teaching some very large uh, undergraduate courses i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what you've learned by doing that that much broader work of you know of trying to teach the canon to or various canons to, to, to people and how it enriches your research, if it does? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm begging the question. Yeah. Well, yes, you read my pause right, Tim. Like, how does it enrich my research? Does it? I mean, it's really, you know, it's a very, it's, I have an amazing job that I'm very grateful for, but the demands are really high. And it's really, I think probably especially in the first few years um, and when family life also makes a big claim on your time, uh, you do feel like you take from, you're taking, it feels like you're taking from research to give to teaching or vice versa. That's how I have felt a lot of the time. Uh, So to kind of think about, so it's good to kind of, uh, it's, it's easier to see that perhaps, than the ways in which they are kind of enriching each other. Um, In a way, going back to our last conversation, teaching helps you with that skill of writing for a non-specialised audience because teaching involves heaps of writing. You write long lectures and you write the kinds of... There you're writing to a non-specialised audience and you're breaking down sort of concepts, stories, scenarios to kind of... Um, and, and there is a narrative arc in, in lectures to engage, to try and engage students for two hours. Um, so that's, that's really good. I like that. Um, in terms of it, the sort of content, like enriching uh, research, I, you know, I would say teaching enriches my life immensely. Um, I like, you know, I like teaching things that are new to me, especially to postgrads, because you really do feel like you're learning together. Uh, and I also like teaching things I feel like I know quite a lot about. Um, teaching Indigenous themed anthropology is, you know, it's it's very. Um, the students bring a lot into the classroom. They bring mm. they bring their angst they bring their goodwill they bring their outrage and and you need to you know it's a big challenge Mm -hmm. to then kind of move beyond all of that and get people really learning for 
13 weeks and and that's an amazing opportunity I really do like teaching that material um I guess I have I, I do like that sort of experience of the lectures that really are based on discrete pieces of research in which you break down how you went about something and what you learned and often the exchange around that is very useful so students ask questions and you're like oh well it goes without saying but nothing goes without saying so you realize that there are things that need to be in the journal article that yeah mm -hmm. uh, and of course i mean because they bring their um they bring their own baggage to the room do they how did how do how does the baggage that students bring into the room inform the kinds of questions that you find yourself thinking about afterwards? In terms of teaching around Indigenous mm, Australian mm -hmm. uh, work, look, I think that just poses heaps of um, challenges for, like, I feel challenged as an educator by, by all that is in the room mm. because I do take as my starting point the fact that everyone everyone has enrolled to learn. Well, you know, conceivably, like, Andrew Bolt could enrol in your <laughs> course, right? But I think that, um, you know, my experience has been every single person there is there to learn. Uh, so when they say things that, you know, create kind of problems for the conversation in terms of them being misinformed or sort of casually racist in some way uh, that has to be turned into a learning opportunity but you also do have to uh, look after sounds I mean that sounds really patronizing I don't mean it to be but you do have to take care of the indigenous students in the room uh, when those moments arise mm -hmm. they're incredibly difficult uh, moments as a teacher uh, but I do derive a lot of satisfaction from you know having moments like that uh, be a part of my mm. my working week mm. um, well we are just drawing to a close in our in our time here so I want to say thanks very much for joining us thanks um, for having me so uh, and thanks to all of you at home also for joining us here in anthropology at Deakin We've been speaking today with Eve Vincent from Macquarie University. And if you'd like to learn more about Eve's work, you can find her online uh, on Macquarie University's website. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter uh, at, at TDNeal, N-E-A-L-E, and at D-H Border Giles, B-O-A-R-D-E-R-G-I-L-E-S, or at blogs.deacon.edu.au slash anthropology. 